Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AARP, empowering people to choose how they live as they age for more than 60 years. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David J. Lynch, Global Economics Correspondent here at The Post. Today I'm joined by Raphael Bostic, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, for a conversation about the economy, inequality, and the American dream. Dr. Bostic, welcome. Thank you, and it's good to be here, David. Good to see you. Well, we're delighted to have you with us. Now, before we get to our discussion about economic opportunity, I do need to ask you about a couple of issues that are making news today. And first, I'd like to get your view of the extraordinary events unfolding in the United Kingdom, where financial markets basically have turned a resounding thumbs down on the government's plan for massive tax cuts and borrowing with inflation already sky high. What implications does the UK situation have for the already weak global economy? Well, I think what we've seen in the reaction to the proposed plan is a a real concern and a a fear that the new actions will add uncertainty to the economy. You know, one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is uh, how do we create more certainty for uh, consumers so that they have confidence that they know what's going to happen uh, moving forward, and I think what uh, what you, we've seen in terms of market reaction is that uh, the proposal has really increased uncertainty and really caused people to question about what the trajectory of the economy is going to be uh, or might be moving forward. Uh, for me, I think that uh, it will certainly cause everyone to think hard about uh, what their policies need to be moving forward and how much of this policy needs to be put in place. Uh, I know they're huddling right now. I have no, con- no, no doubt about that. Uh, for, for me and for us here in the United States, I think the, the key question will be, uh, what does this mean for, uh, for ultimately weakening the European economy, which is an important consideration for how the U.S. economy is going to perform? You know as well as I do that, uh, that w- uh, the trade with Europe is inc- incredibly important for our economic performance, and if that gets weaker, that puts more stress on us. So at the end of the day, does greater instability emanating from the UK increase the odds of a global recession? Well, I think it doesn't help it. Uh, you know, there, it, it would take international modelers to really try to quantify how much. But you know, one of the things that we know as a basic tenet of economics is that more uncertainty leads to less engagement uh, for consumers and businesses uh, and less engagement in an already tenuous uh, environment is not going to be uh, positive. So, uh, so it is a concern. It's something that me and my team and all of us here in the Federal Reserve will be watching closely uh, to make sure that we understand the implications of, uh, of this development. I would also say, though, that you know, at this point, as I understand it, uh, these are just proposals, uh, and we haven't actually seen what's going to play out on, on the ground. And so uh, that'll be the other important question as we move forward. Right. Now, back in the U.S., the Federal Reserve last week raised interest rates for the fifth time this year. 
markets this summer were clearly too optimistic about prospects for an early end uh, to the Fed's rate hikes. But with stocks and bonds now being driven uh, down uh, for several days in a row, are investors too pessimistic about the outlook uh, or are they simply reacting appropriately uh, to a fundamental change in the cost of borrowing? Well, you know, I don't know whether they're too optimistic or, or not optimistic enough. You know, for me, I, I actually think the more important thing is that uh, we need to get inflation under control. And un until that happens, uh, we're going to see, I think, a lot of volatility in the marketplace in all directions. Little pieces of news can drive people to and, and businesses to, to draw some more extreme conclusions that I think might be appropriate. And all of this, I think, is driven by the fact that we have inflation that is too high. You know, the U.S. economy functions best when there's confidence about what, where the economy is going to be and what its trajectory is going to be over both the short and the medium term. And high inflation undermines that. Uh, so what we need to do is get inflation to be much more under control, down to our 2% target. And once that happens, I think we'll be able to draw uh, more clear signals from where uh, the market is, is uh, evolving to. But also, you know, I just think we'll just hear much more clearly from businesses and from consumers. These are the investments that I'm going to make. This is how I'm thinking about my prospects, and I'm pretty confident that's going to happen. Once we get there, I think it'll be uh, far less likely that we'll see the wild swings uh, that we've seen over the last several uh, weeks. Uh, but I still think we've got a ways to go, and there's some more work that we're going to have to do to try to help uh, move inflation in the right direction. Now, the, the Fed obviously is, is not alone in, in raising interest rates. Central banks in uh, Europe, the UK, Canada, uh, really all around the world, uh, with a uh, few exceptions, uh, have been doing likewise. Uh, how do you assess the risks that all this relatively uncoordinated monetary tightening could, in its cumulative impact, prove excessive uh, and thus drive the global economy into a recession that it might otherwise avoid? Well, I'll say two things on this. Uh, first, I don't think it's as uncoordinated as, as some might think. You know, our, our leaders here, the chair and others in Washington, talk regularly with their colleagues across the world. Uh, and so there's a, an awareness of what we're seeing and, and a collective understanding about how it all fits together that, uh, that informs our thinking about the exposure of the U.S. economy to things that are happening overseas and the exposure of overseas economies to things that are happening here. And all of that is taken into account. So, so I do think that that is an important thing for people to, to understand that we are not on an island, our economy is not on an island, so it wouldn't be appropriate for our policy to be there either. And then the second thing I would also say is it's important to remember that at the beginning of this tightening episode, uh, monetary policy was at its maximally accommodative stance. We were basically at zero, which is trying to push the economy as strong as possible. And you see the same basic stance in central banks all the way across the world. So I think when you look at our policy, we are just now getting to a place where we might be construed as having a, a more constrictive or restrictive stance. But many other central banks are, are, are in a position where they're just not pushing as hard as they used to be. So I think while there's going to be less momentum coming from our policy, uh, we haven't fully pulled the reins yet. And so I think the likelihood of uh, a cascade such that we get a global recession is not 
where we are right now, but it is definitely something we'll have to keep an eye on uh, in the weeks and months to come. Okay. Now, you've been very vocal about the need to spread the gains of economic growth, the benefits of economic growth throughout the entire society. And, and you've said uh, that, that you think uh, the U.S. has, quote, a moral and economic imperative to end racism, close quote. What are, what are the practical implications of that imperative for the Fed's management uh, of the economy? How, how would things, how should things be different in how the Fed operates if it really does make that a core concern? Well, first of all, I would say, you know, we have a dual mandate of uh, stable prices and maximum employment. And that dual mandate really informs and guides how we think about the economy. Uh, and when I first started in this job, I really asked the question, like, what should our maximum employment uh, benchmark be and how should we think about it? And one thing that uh, became very clear is that uh, there were parts of our economy, there were parts of our economic community that were not contributing nearly as much as they might have otherwise. Uh, and that was constraining our economic potential. That was stopping or slowing our ability to get to maximum employment. And so, uh, so we do think about that. I think about that a lot here in, in this bank. And there are a couple of ways to think about this. One is just really to figure out what are the drivers or the, the things that are causing uh, that, that impairment, that, that are preventing economic uh, opportunities from reaching everyone so those, so those people can reach their full potential. And as I go around the U.S. and, the, and my district in the Southeast, you know, I talk to people and they tell me the things that are not working. They tell me about education or about childcare or, or constraints. And I'm able to take that information and move that into uh, discussions that I have with policymakers who have the levers uh, to potentially make a change there. The second thing that I think is important is that it's really helped us think about how we execute monetary policy. Now, it's very clear that monetary policy doesn't do the targeted sorts of investments that uh, would most directly affect some of these challenges. But it is also the case that monetary policy does have implications for basically the foundation of the economy and also uh, the, the uh, benchmarks and the baselines uh, as we move forward. And one of the things that we've learned over the last really 10 years or so is that uh, the Federal Reserve was a little too uh, aggressive in slowing growth as we got closer to maximum employment and there was a risk that uh, maybe we were preventing the economy from including people uh, in terms of employment that we might have otherwise. So in our new framework, we basically took the position that we wouldn't slow the economy because of uh, the fear that the economy was going to overheat until we actually saw inflation start to move. And then once that happened, then we would slow it down. And I think that helped right before the pandemic lead to millions of people uh, to get jobs uh, that would not have under previous approaches to monetary policy. So I think there are, in both those ways, we have an ability to, to speak to and try to help make progress in terms of the inequality that we see in the U.S. economy. I, I want to ask you uh, about that framework, but I'll, I'll come back to that in a bit. First of all, just to make sure I'm clear, so you're not calling for any sort of formal expansion to the dual mandate. It's more a question of just how it's interpreted and and I ask that because, as you know, the Fed uh, already faces criticism from some on Capitol Hill who say that it's, it may be losing its focus on the dual mandate by worrying about concerns 
such as climate change? So, you know, first of all, I, I, I'm laser focused on the dual mandate. And I don't want anyone to think that I spend any time on things that are not directly contributing to our mandate. Pretty much everything that, that I do is with the goal of trying to help our economy reach its, its, its maximum potential. And that will get us to maximum employment and stable prices. So, so that's the baseline there. I, I don't have any interest or goal to get our institution to go beyond that. I, I think we've, we've got a lot, enough on our hands already. Uh, and we want to, I think it's appropriate for us to stay in that space. Just on the climate change uh, question so that you mentioned it, you know, one of the things that we are charged with doing is trying to preserve and maintaining uh, financial stability. And to the extent that uh, climate change is introducing new risks into the portfolios of banking institutions and the communities across the country, uh, we need to understand the nature of those risks and make sure that banking institutions are prepared in case those risks come to fruition. You know, we've got a hurricane that's going to bear, that's bearing down right now on Florida. That's part of my, part of my district. Um, that has implications for holdings and loans that banks have. I'm hopeful that this storm does not do a lot of damage. But what we've seen over the last several years is storms are bigger, they're stronger, and they're doing more damage, which exposes all of my financial institutions in the sixth district to a lot more danger. And I think it's responsible for us to just acknowledge that and have conversations to make sure that banking institutions are thinking about that and have a plan moving forward so that they're still around tomorrow to continue to provide the services that we need them to do. Okay. Now, in one of your speeches, you described systemic racism as the yoke that drags on the entire economy. And you provided some striking evidence of how this has worked uh, over the generations. And, and the example that, that stuck with me uh, was that at the end of World War II, when the government was trying to promote home ownership, in the state of Mississippi, out of a total number of VA guaranteed home loans that uh, was 3,200 total home loans, uh, only two went to African-American borrowers. And I don't want to repeat that number because I, I had to read the speech or that passage twice to make sure I was reading it correctly. The government gave borrowers in the state of Mississippi, gave 3,200 of them discounted loans that they guaranteed, the government guaranteed, only two went to African-American borrowers. And folks might ask, well, who cares? That was a long time ago. But acquiring homes and uh, and passing them on, building wealth, this is, this is how the process works. And obviously, if white families were able to access uh, government financial aid that was largely off limits to blacks, that has an effect that lingers uh, over time. But what can the Fed do about those sorts of historic inequities? What, what should the central bank try to do about that? Well, I think, that, well, first of all, when I saw those numbers, um, I had to read them several times myself. Uh, you know, that was uh, really just a striking uh, demonstration of the disparities and experiences under ostensibly a single program, which has uh, major implications. In terms of what the Fed should do, I think that the, just the virtue of you having um, now had, having that, those facts in your head is an important contribution. You know, as I've gone around the country and my district and talking about uh, how we help the economy be more effective, 
what I found is that many are not aware of the things that have happened in the past that are contributing to our constraints. You know, as you appropriately noted, you know, home ownership has been a pathway for wealth building for families uh, throughout the history of this country. And it often becomes the, the, the uh, foundation upon which uh, families and entrepreneurs are able to start small businesses, uh, to go to college and to do a whole host of things that allow them to ultimately be much more productive. And so having folks that are, are aware, having the American public be aware of the realities that have prevented some from getting to those uh, uh, experiences, I think uh, can help us have a, a, a richer conversation about things we might do uh, to try to make sure that doesn't happen moving forward and uh, think maybe creatively about uh, how we uh, allow people's ideas to carry the day as opposed to uh, their past financial situations. All true, but I, I wonder though, you know, as you look back, we've had a half century of various government programs that have tried to address some of these issues to close uh, some of the uh, some of the gaps between uh, racial groups and and other groups in society, and they've had limited success to be charitable. I think so. I wonder what you would say uh, or what your view is of arguments for more dramatic action, more dramatic action, although politically controversial action, something like financial reparations for the descendants of enslaved people. Is that something that makes sense, or is it just too controversial to even look at? Well, you know, I don't know if it's too controversial. That, that's for policymakers um, who are going to face that question to, to think about. I do think, though, to your point that, you know, we all should be thinking about to what extent are the practices and policies that we're doing um, helping to make progress on this. And so I've had a number of conversations with businesses in the last several years where um, they have tried to explore are there things that we are doing in terms of how we make people aware of our job openings and the like um, that are not as inclusive as they might be? So the Chamber of Convert, the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce here has a racial equity initiative where they've created playbooks to help businesses examine their policies and maybe find ways to reach people they hadn't been reaching before and employ them. Um, there's a partnership for inclusive innovation here in the state of Georgia uh, that is run out of the lieutenant governor's office, which is trying to get investment capital to small business uh, entrepreneurs um, who typically don't have access to venture capital and the like. And the thing I really like about that program is that they've tried to make sure that entrepreneurs are, are contacted who aren't just in the metro Atlanta area, which is where a lot of that money goes. So, so I think the key here is really for us collectively to think about different ways that we might do the things that we do to try to reach people in different ways. And you know, I will say in both the, the partnership case, uh, the uh, Metro Atlanta Chamber case, and even a case such as creating internships for high school potential dropouts, what I've heard in, in terms of the outcomes uh, have been that people have performed far better than you might have expected otherwise, and that there are really good ideas out there that can, can move the dial both in terms of income and in terms of wealth building uh, that we need so much in so many parts of the country. What's your assessment of the role that the Fed's own policies, though, have played 
in contributing to greater income inequality. The ultra low interest rates of the past 10 or 15 years, for example, uh, fueled a, a huge boom in financial markets. And that was great news for people who already owned financial assets at the beginning of that period, but it further contributed to them pulling away from lower income groups. Is that just an unintended consequence that couldn't be avoided given the nature of the various financial crises, or was the Fed not uh, not thinking of these sort of outcomes? So I was not at the Fed in those days, so I can't tell you what they were and weren't thinking about. What I'll say is this, I, you know, I think this is a really hard issue. You know, at one level, you know, my charge in the Federal Reserve is to create price stability to establish a, an environment in the economy that allows it to grow robustly. Um, we don't have a lot of say in terms of what the distribution of income was before, what the distribution of wealth was before. And the unfortunate reality is if the economy is growing, those who have wealth are going to get wealthier. And those who have not been able or positioned to have wealth, they're not gonna be able to participate in the same way. So for me, what I've really tried to do in terms of thinking about this is, let's get as many people into the wealth building space as possible. Let's make sure that they have enough income or that they, they're building the skills that allow them to compete for jobs that get them uh, income, that allows them to live sustainably and not on the edge, moving them away from being precarious. And then once they do have an ability to, to, to build wealth, uh, let's make sure that they build that wealth in a safe and sound way. So we do a lot in terms of financial literacy and financial ad advising in terms of putting tools out there for people so that they can understand things they might do once they are positioned. But look, we didn't get into this situation in three or four years. This is going to be something that's going to take many, many years for us to, to really uh, make sizable progress. But you know, in many ways, even though I'm a central banker and I'm paid to get nervous, I'm also very optimistic about what we can do as Americans. And I think that the more that we see that there's potential and growth and good ideas coming from places uh, that we haven't always looked at closely, uh, I have every confidence that we will start to see more and more capital flow there and more and more investment in ways that allows us to get broader growth and more employment and a more resilient economy. So a few minutes ago, you mentioned the Fed's new inflation targeting framework, and, and arguably, I think that could be uh, the tool where the Fed may potentially have the greatest potential impact on these sort of issues. But, uh, and the idea being that the Fed would allow the economy to run hot for longer so that disadvantaged groups would have a chance, who are always the last in line, would have a chance to benefit uh, from a tight labor market. But I wonder whether this current uh, episode of high inflation uh, essentially strangles that strategy in its crib. Uh, because won't the Fed be uh, allergic to a resumption of inflation once this current episode is, is put to rest, which could take a year or two or three? Well, you know, I, I, I would I look at it a little differently. You know, I think that the environment that we're in right now, the high inflation environment we're in right now, is very much the byproduct of a COVID economy. We have high demand uh, because a lot of people were sitting at home for multiple years, not spending money. Uh, we had a strong fiscal support and we had an economy that turned out to be far more resilient than I think anyone had anticipated. 
At the same time, we have supply chain disruptions. We have war in, uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, we have a lot of challenges in China in terms of a drought. Uh, all of those things have really constrained supply. So that imbalance that we have is of a nature that we haven't historically seen. So I'm not sure that it would be appropriate to draw long-term lessons from this experience. Certainly we have to make sure first and foremost that we get infl inflation under control because if we don't have that price stability, we're not going to be in a situation where we're gonna see businesses and families uh, be willing to invest in themselves and it could undermine the likelihood that we can have sustained growth. But once we get that under control, I think it's gonna be an important conversation that, that we have in the Federal Reserve at the Federal Open Markets Committee about how we're going to approach this and exactly what lessons we should learn from this pandemic episode. But I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that uh, we're gonna be skittish or anything like that. I think this is going to be an open conversation where we're gonna let the data and the evidence and what we see from how the economy has evolved uh, inform what we think the appropriate path forward should look like. So you mentioned the, the unique features of, of the last couple of years of uh, economic circumstances, which I think no one can argue with. But in light of that, I'd, I'd like you to look back at the experience of the last year or so. Uh, as you know, Fed officials from Chair Powell on down spent most of last year insisting that inflation would prove, quote unquote, transitory. And uh, that, of course, turned out not to be the case. We ended up with the highest inflation in, in 40 years. Should the Fed have done a better job of understanding what was happening in the economy? Or was it the case that for all the circumstances you laid out, repeated unforeseeable shocks, the economy, the pandemic era economy was simply unreadable? Well, you know, I, I think this has been a very difficult time. And, you know, if you're an economist and you're building models, those models are predicated on data from previous episodes from in, in history. And this episode is just unlike all of them. And so um, I, I do think this is a, a particularly difficult uh, environment. It's one of the reasons why at our bank, we have actually decided, and we decided this a while ago, but we found a, a higher premium on this, to do a lot more direct outreach to collect information in real time and to engage in surveys uh, that happen with a faster frequency than what some of the, the national data provide. Uh, to hopefully give us an earlier sign or signal of what was going on. And look, we were getting glimpses that inflation was going to be a risk and that um, there was, and there was also a diversity of views on how fast the supply chain issues would resolve. Um, so, so it was difficult. But now we're in a place where we know inflation has gone up rapidly and it has been enduring and we've got to take that on board. And I think what you've seen is we've, us doing just that uh, and I think there's still some more work to do on that front, but uh, no one should doubt our resolve to, to get inflation under control. Okay, in, in the limited time we have left, I wanna ask you a question I asked President Mester of the Cleveland Fed uh, when she joined us last month, which is, as you know, this is a time when many people uh, doubt elites, doubt elite institutions in this country, whether it's the press, big business, uh, government, uh, you name it. And I wonder how you assess the institutional credibility of the Fed with the broader public, not so much financial markets, but with the broader public after the experience of the last year. Is it something you worry about? You know, I worry about this every day, but I will say I've been heartened as I go around the sixth district 
Uh, people actually believe in us. They have faith that what we're doing is going to be effective. You see this in the data. The long-run expectations for inflation are at the target that we are, are at or near the target that we have in place. Uh, and um, this is not the, the uh, concern that I hear more often. More often I hear folks say, uh, keep doing what you're doing, get the information that you need, uh, and uh, we will be behind you. I, I think our transparency and our willingness to tell people exactly what we're thinking in real time uh, has, has been helpful. It's something I'm going to continue to do. And you know, as you talk to my colleagues, uh, they are really in this for the right reasons. And I think the public has understood that pretty clearly. Interesting. Unfortunately, that's uh, the final word. We, we are out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Raphael Bostic, thanks so much for joining us today. We, uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.